Hello, welcome to the University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman. This is the podcast which catches up with academic staff and students at the university and talks to them about their specialist subjects. It might not have escaped your attention that there's been an election going on in recent weeks. Democrat Joe Biden is the new US president-elect, but as we record this, incumbent Donald Trump is refusing to concede with himself and his campaign team, making allegations of vote fraud despite no evidence for it. So what does all this mean going forward for the US, for us, for politics in general? We've assembled a panel to analyze that. Joining me is Dr. John Watson, course leader for undergraduate critical history course, Dr. Andy Knott, uh, course leader, MA philosophy and politics, and Dr. Robin Dunford, course leader for MA globalization, politics, conflict, and human rights. Thanks all of you for coming on. Loads to get stuck into. First off then, the world at the moment, of course, it's a very different place. The last four years or so in politics, here and in the US, it's been a whirlwind. Um, look, what does Joe Biden's win mean for the US and the world? Bit of a general question to start, isn't it? Uh, I'll, I'll have a, I'll, I'll kick things off. Um, just, just by reflecting on the, the impact on the United States. Um, well, you only have to have been watching the news coverage to, to see that the, the impact really varies by, by uh, those supporting Biden, those uh, who support Trump. We've got a deeply divided and polarised United States. We've had, on the one hand, celebrations in the streets, but on the other hand, we've had counter-protests. We've had people celebrating a new dawn. We've had allegations of theft. And it all suggests that the, the cultural and political divisions that exist in the United States and have certainly been there for at least 40 years um, haven't gone away. Um, it, two examples just to, to pick that up that I've, I've seen. One evangelical Christian from Iowa who was interviewed about the Biden victory um, said that Biden didn't stand for Christianity at all and that, but, but that maybe he'd prove her wrong, but she worried that everything she held dear was about to be destroyed. That's on, the, that's on one side. And on the other side, if you watched um, the declaration on CNN, the, um, the correspondent Van Jones burst into tears when he was describing what it meant uh, for Biden to win, that being a dad, being a parent was going to be that much easier. Those are some pretty profoundly different reactions, but it, it does speak to that sense of a deeply divided country. The election itself, I mean, like, you know, huge numbers turn out to, to, to vote in this election. Um, US really very engaged and during the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, and I mean, in terms of turnout, this, this is a major break with the past. Um, turnout, despite the claim of, of, about the wonders of American democracy, um, turnouts in American presidential elections have, have been low by comparative standards um, when you compare, I don't know, Western European countries such as the UK, for instance, but, but plenty of others. So, for instance, when Clinton got re-elected in 96, he didn't, uh, um, the turnout was less than 50%. Um, we look as though we, um, it's gone up subsequently, um, um, but we look as though it's probably going to go as high as perhaps two thirds of the electorate, maybe even 70%, um, because of course they're still counting 
at the moment. So this is a quite radical break. Um, and I think uh, it is, whatever you think of him, um, in no small part down to Donald Trump. People turned out to vote because they love, love him. People turned out to vote because they hate him. And that speaks to what John was saying, um, is that uh, America is a profoundly divided country. Um, however much Biden attempts to paper over the cracks, to speak about governing for all Americans, as opposed to Democrats and Republicans, I think it, it's going to be quite difficult to heal that divide. Um, and you asked question, uh, a question initially, and, and Robin may work well want to come in after this, actually, um, about what it means for the world. Um, well, in the short term, what you'll see um, is a return to certain international institutions. One of the ways in which the divide in American politics has played out in the last uh, of four years and probably for longer is a divide between internationalism um, on the one hand which um, Biden is a representative of and um, well American foreign policy has actually two different strands to it beyond internationalism historically and that's either interventionism or isolationism. Now Trump has probably veered far more towards the isolationist stand, strand um, and that came with him pulling out of Paris, pulling out of, of the World Health Organization. I think you'll see them uh, and Biden swiftly return to that. I mean he's already indicated that he'll do that um, but I suppose the bigger question is what happens with all these international institutions or global institutions um, under a Biden presidency beyond returning um, to those uh, uh, agreements. Yes, so I mean one of the first big differences we're going to see from having Biden rather than Trump is that shift away from the put America first, make sure America is not encumbered by international agreements type approach to global affairs that we had from Donald Trump and we'll get a return to a US internationalism. Um, the, the Democratic Party platform uh, was, in terms of foreign policy, one of renewing American leadership um, by rebuilding alliances and partnerships with countries that have shared democratic values. And some of the first material consequences of that are going to be a return to the Paris Agreement uh, allowing the World Trade Organization to do its job, uh, putting a few, putting fewer spanner in the works. Um, but it doesn't necessarily, it's not only a kind of great thing to celebrate as we get a return to a greater US role or, or a different kind of US role on the world stage. Um, first of all, the agreements that are being signed back up to have often been considered to not be particularly adequate, to not actually fully address the challenges. The Paris Agreement arguably doesn't go nearly far enough to avoid a climate emergency, but also the effects of US leadership haven't all been positive. We had uh, Obama, very much a global leader, who intensified the program of drone strikes uh, that included striking people with drones when they don't actually know who the person is, they just know a certain signature of where they move. So it's not necessarily all rosy to see the US uh, return to that role. And there are gonna be various ways in which it might heighten some tensions among superpowers and it might certainly continue tensions with China who 
don't like, who have a very different approach to global affairs, where they look to support global issues, including development, trades, um, alleviating poverty and so on, but not by suggesting particular models of internal political rule. Hmm. We're going to talk about how it directly might affect the UK in a little bit. In, in general, you know, there's a, may, maybe a, a viewpoint from, I think, at least in the UK, that we might be heading towards somewhere where politics is a little bit more stable or starts to become that way, or the world becomes a little bit less, um, a little bit more stable, there's a little bit less conflict. <laughs> What's your actual views on that, Robin? Um, well, I mean, so, some of the things Biden has talked about are um, uh, encouraging US allies to uh, ensure they are strong enough to support the US in its uh, issues around defense and security. Um, and in a sense, that is a, a way of saying that he's going to want, um, he's a very firm supporter of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. He's going to want to see countries that have relative, that are relatively close to Russia continue to build up their military arsenals near the Russian border. Um, likewise, they've got close alliances with South Korea, and he's going to want South Korea to be looking particularly strong uh, in relation to the, the, the threat of North Korea and also China. So I think some of these internationalist measures, um, I say this as someone who's delighted that Biden won rather than Trump, um, but some of these internationalist measures aren't necessarily stability inducing. Uh, it, it's a different kind of instability. It's less the kind of the, the sense that you're at the whim of um, a character like Donald Trump who might very suddenly completely step away from an agreement. Um, it's a different kind of instability, but it's an instability nonetheless where America's vision of global leadership uh, very much clashes with the vision that Russia and China have um, of not advocating certain values like uh, electoral, electoral democracy within the states, free markets, um, and allowing other countries to go their own way. So, so the renewed US leadership in global affairs doesn't, I don't think, necessarily lead to more stability. Uh, it will mean that conflicts play out in a slightly different way, um, less sudden trade wars as Trump has a drastic shift and more the enduring disagreements between uh, the US, Russia and China, who are major emerging powers on how global affairs should play out. Andy, I think you wants to come in. Yeah, um, I, I suppose uh, a few points, if I may. I mean, uh, firstly, following on from what Robin indicated, um, um, and coronavirus would, would have accelerated this because China's economy has returned growth already, or at least that's what their um, official announcement has said. Um, but they've certainly been less affected, despite it um, uh, originating there, which um, Trump is obviously very keen to point out. Um, that Thus far, their economy has been less affected by COVID. Um, and it seems as though it will accelerate um, or, or hasten the moment at which China overtakes the US as the world's leading economy. Now, this has been going on for a while, and to me it seemed quite obvious for a while. Um, but of course, both China and um, the United States are members of the Permanent Five uh, um, Security Council, of the United Nations. Um, so how that is going to pan out is going to be unclear. Um, 
But many of the problems in the United States is aligned with the emergence of China as a global economic power in the 20th and 21st century. I mean, uh, historians talked about Chimerica um, at a certain moment, that kind of bringing together of China and America, which was prominent in the 90s and the, the, the noughties, um, may well be coming to an end um, despite the defeat of Trump. But um, this, I suppose this brings me back to your original question, R Richard, um, and um, this ongoing American decline has, um, hasn't been caused by Trump. Trump is the symptom, he's the sign of that ongoing decline. And um, I, I, I don't see it ending in, in, in any great hurry. Um, and I suppose just to kind of finish up, this brings on me to um, my current research interest, which is on the notion of populism, um, which is a kind of curious phenomenon um, um, that uh, many people kind of struggle to understand, because, certainly in Europe, for instance, because we don't have a long history of populism. Um, but one of my claims is that populism thrives in a crisis. Um, and um, I suppose the key question for a Biden presidency is whether he can um, dampen the crisis or not. And this leads on to my final point, which is, um, uh, well, Trump has packed the Supreme Court with um, very social conservative judges, um, despite the fact that he was never a social conservative. Um, he is just an egotist, effectively. But, and also this, this is gonna swing, and um, this might, bring John back in actually. This is gonna swing on what happens with Georgia with this um, uh, um, re-election for the Senate. But at the moment, it looks as though um, the Senate will be won by the Republicans. And even if Biden um, wanted to make some quite significant changes to try and um, um, redirect American, the American economy, politics and society, I suspect that um, uh, um, certainly if the Senate uh, um, is a Republican Senate, um, they will just prevent anything from getting through, uh, um, uh, even if Biden actually wanted to make these quite serious changes. I'd go along with that. I, I just um, another point about China. Um, whilst we're there, the, the United States obviously it's, it's not a it doesn't have a border with China, but it stares across the Pacific Ocean at China, and it's it's long been concerned about Chinese economic growth and Chinese power uh, since the start of the 20th century. Um, and in 1970, 71, Richard Nixon talked about how the United States managed its power as it declined relative to China, Europe, and the Soviet Union, as it, as it then was. And really that, that question about the relationship between the United States and other powers is something that American presidents have wrestled with ever since. Uh, Nixon sought a kind of 
uh, to balance powers in relation to each other, treating them as just simple states, regardless of their political ideologies. But since then, uh, other presidents have taken the relationship between states and American power as an ideological struggle again. Rich, uh, Ronald Reagan is probably the most famous example of that, the, the desire to win the Cold War in the 1980s. So Trump contained echoes of that, that sense of, you know, the uni a muscular United States policy, but it's, it's, it's far, from, far from clear what Joe Biden will be able to do. And just, that's just to respond to Andy's uh, final point there. Yeah, there's going to be a special election in Georgia uh, for its two Senate seats. It's possible that one or both of them will go for the Democrats. It's not, it's not likely. Um, and if, it, if they don't get both of them, uh, then the Republicans will maintain control of the Senate. And that will have a significant impact for at least two years until the next set uh, of senatorial elections on, on what it is possible for Joe Biden to do without, without consensus. Um, I'm just looking at the timer going down there. <laughs> Robin, do you want to come in on that one before you move it on? Yeah, just one last point on China. I mean, there's lots of talk of China's economic rise and the issues that presents to the US. But over the last um, decade or more, there's also been a huge political rise of China in international affairs. And that's one of the um, major issues Biden is going to face as he tries to return the US to a position of leadership in global affairs. Uh, there was a time when if a country needed uh, development assistance, loans and so on and so forth, uh, they could go to the US or they could go to an institution in which the US have uh, a, a dominant say, often a casting a, a, a vote that lets them have a huge sway on the kind of decisions it makes. Uh, it's now the case that countries can go to China who are providing assistance to alternative development banks. Um, and one of the areas where we might see tensions continue um, as we move from a Trump presidency to a Biden presidency is that uh, the US under Biden will look to reassert this role as um, America as a leader on a global stage, but they're going to find that lots of those that they want to lead have a significant alternative in who they can become close to in, in foreign affairs uh, with China having risen in that way. So that's one of the areas where I think it, it doesn't, Trump's, sorry, Biden's victory, um, important as it is, doesn't necessarily signal a transformation to a, a more harmonious global order. Donald Trump, he's refusing to back down. The US Attorney General's given the go-ahead to investigate allegations of vote frauds. There's just no evidence of that. Um, and, and overnight, we're recording this on a day as well where even right-wing media has been extremely um, kind on, on Trump. Fox News cut away from a briefing with the White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McKennedy overnight because they didn't feel like it was, they were doing a responsible job by broadcasting the claims that were being made. An extraordinary situation. What's next? Well, just, just before we get to the, the what's next, it's worth just reminding ourselves of the way things are supposed to work, which is that the election has, has taken place. Um, there are a number of deadlines that are coming up in December, December the 8th, states have to decide uh, who their electors are going to be for the meeting of the Electoral College. And then on December the 14th, the Electoral College, which isn't a building, but it is actually, it does exist. It's a, it's a process that has, um, it certainly exists for this occasion. That's when the vote 
will take place. That's then verified by a new joint session of Congress in January before the president takes up his place, is inaugurated on January the, the 20th. And usually any investigations into electoral fraud or, or malfeasance would take place after that December the 8th, December the 14th, after those deadlines. So it's extraordinarily rare for um, a current attorney general to advocate investigations during the process when ballots are still being counted. And a number of states, the, the deadlines for counting um, fall in the next week, at least. So this is an intervention, an investigation during, you could argue during the election. It's being called, but vote counting is continuing. And, and that is a pretty, pretty extraordinary state of affairs. So that's just the context of what's happening now and, and how it differs from, from some of the norms that we would expect in a presidential election. Yeah, I mean, John's there mentioning the, the term norms. I mean, um, when I said earlier that Trump wasn't a social conservative, he knows no norms whatsoever. He's a relativist on that front and an egotist. And he's had a pretty easy life. Um, and he's used to at least being presented as a winner. That's how he likes to present himself. So this psychologically looks as though it's quite a difficult thing for him to take. And that's kind of um, panning out. But I suppose this also is a kind of register of what I was talking about, the crisis and decline of America. Um, for Trump to, and, um, and this is one of the key things that we may well need to talk about is the role of the Republican Party here. But for Trump and so many figures within the Republican Party to um, make these unfounded assertions about multiple different counts in multiple different places is effectively questioning um, the American Constitution and the role of democracy within the kind of American view of itself um, and the electoral process and effectively what he's he's doing at the moment is he's seeking to undermine that um, I mean if you want to call, call um, American democracy as an institution it's an institution that um, Americans regard to be a beacon that they've given to the world in, in terms of um, yeah, but the, just one, one last thing in terms of uh, um, Trump has always struggled with the truth. I mean, um, in the same year that Trump became president, um, uh, uh, the Oxford English Dictionary declared um, the word of the year to be post-truth. Um, and he's always struggled with such things. I mean, I suppose one of my abiding recent memories is when he said, said I don't think science knows. Well, of course, he thinks that he knows, but there's something um, brutal about the numbers um, that is challenging him on that front. And the way in which the numbers, um, the counting played out in, in a kind of slow motion um, episode. I mean, it, it was a thrilling kind of drama, really, for a while. I was, I was absorbed, um, I have to say. Mm. Sorry, Robin. I was going to come to the 
what next uh, part. And I don't think the legal campaigns will get anywhere. They appear to have no merit whatsoever. But what's going on is, is in a sense, Trump, with this lack of concern for the truth, looking to create a narrative that will probably get believed by quite significant proportion of his vote. And that narrative actually is one that feeds into a lot of the narratives that Trump has been uh, creating and exploiting over the years um, around the importance of draining the swamp, corruption in Washington, uh, the political class not liking outsiders and looking to run things in their own favour. So I think the, the, the real danger in this is that even though the courts will likely throw this out pretty quickly, there'll be a proportion of the American population that will continue to believe in the version of events that Trump is uh, putting out there. And that will continue to sow those divisions that we've talked about earlier and continue to, to foster that sentiment against the political establishment that will potentially get utilized again by Trump or a Trump-like figure when well, it comes to the next campaign. Yeah, so, so well, let's, let's just tackle that then quickly because I mean there's, there's plenty of, um, of talk that you know what if Trump runs again in, in four years? Can you see that happening? And you know he's a, he's, he's a guy that you know he's been Whatever you think of him, he's been absolute box office, and his um, and his followers will continue to follow him. So he could continue the momentum, couldn't he, for the next four years? If he really wanted to do it, he can keep them on side. But it's it's distinctly possible if you think about it. His campaign won seventy million votes. Uh, he he increased his turnout um, on on four years ago. Um, and the narratives he's been sowing, the, the, the sense, he's been sowing this narrative in one sense since 2016. He said that he would only accept the result of the 2016 election if he won. He set up a fraud commission um, that didn't really discover very much in 2017. Um, and he's been peddling the, the fraud and theft lines for a large part of this year. And those narratives of that sense of theft, of, of being you know, of losing power of, of some sense that the deep state is fraudulently taking what uh, he, he rightfully owns. You, you can see how that sets up uh, the, the, next, the, next, uh, the next campaign. Whether he'll do it, he, he, you know, be four years older, he might, uh, he might appoint a younger man or, or tee up a, another member of the clan to take his place. So just, just one extra thing I wanted to note here, that his strategy throughout this campaign in relation to a lot of areas, but especially COVID, has been the, the multiple untruth strategy. And it works something like this, wherein you, you tell enough lies that when people start to pick up on your lies and challenge them, you then tell more lies. And because you've got people's attention, they might then follow those lies, and then you tell more lies. <laughs> And you keep that going. And, and he didn't invent this strategy. And there's a distinct chance he learnt it from a former legal counsel to his family, a man called Roy Cohn. And Roy Cohn, before he was legal counsel to the Trump family, was legal counsel to Senator Joseph R. McCarthy during the 1950s uh, anti-communist witch hunts. And McCarthy developed that strategy of you tell a lie, you tell it enough times, you get the media attention, and then just as you're about to be found out, you produce more lies. Um, 
he perfected that strategy, um, what is it, 70 years ago. Um, so the, the strategy has legs. It's shown it can work before, and it will probably work again. And the narrative is there of theft um, already for the next, either Trump again or the, the next member of the Trump family or, a, or another surrogate to, to take on board uh, that particular agenda. Before you come in, Andy, just, just picking you up on, on that, though, John, I mean, if you're talking about how the media, you get that message into the media, but the media started to get a bit fed up of it in these last few weeks. They, they've, they've got to a point, even in America, where media that would be quite sympathetic to Trump aren't going with him. So have the, has, he, has he now crossed the line? Well, I would say, if you, if just to take our, both our cases there, if you take McCarthy and you take Trump, it, it takes the media an awfully long time to learn the lesson and to start to confront what it has helped to facilitate. It, in the 1950s, it took something like four years before the news media eventually um, started to investigate McCarthy. And famously, a, a journalist called Edward R. Murrow produced a 30-minute uh, broadside takedown of McCarthy that was partly responsible for his eventual fall um, but it, we're talking about people taking Trump's press conferences off the air after an election after four years where the, the broadcast media but also Twitter and Facebook have, have pretty much given him free reign to, to as I say continue that agenda with without moderating his tweets something they've only started to do very recently and yeah, I mean, um, uh, I, I really agree with what John's just said about what I think you call the multiple untruth strategy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, something along those lines. But of course, the big difference between uh, um, McCarthyism and now is social media. Uh, and he's been an absolute master at that. Um, now, uh, I've already talked about how Trump um, doesn't like to be um, conceived of as a loser, and this is he's he's trying to work through this at the moment. But I, I do wonder whether um, even worse than that would be um, that he became an irrelevance. Um, uh, he wants nothing but the limelight on that front. And about him returning to power in four years' time, or or or, or to candidacy. Um, uh, I, I would imagine that his relevance will continue by these purported legal cases, um, which will give him another platform to um, uh, um, claim that there's such a thing as a deep, deep state and um, that he's been maligned and persecuted, etc., etc. But the the key thing I really do think is that the the Republican Party also known as the Grand Old Party, has been, um, much like the Conservatives here, claimed that they're the natural party of government and that they're the grown-ups, the sensible people. Um, uh, I'm not so sure, unless they distance themselves from Trump very, very quickly, that they're going to be able to um, make that claim for too much longer. But um, John might well know more about such things than me. Well, just can I? I'll just come back on that quick. I mean, since the since at the very least the nineteen 
90s, but you could take this back to the 1960s, there, there's been a tendency in the Republican Party, a kind of radical ideological right tendency that has sought to portray the Democratic Party not as the opponents, not as political opponents, people across the aisle who you might have a, you might have a drink with after a session in Congress or whatever, um, but as the enemy, as an ideological enemy and potentially as traitors to the United States. Uh, that phenomena really got going under uh, the uh, Republican Speaker of the House in the 1990s, a man called Newt Gingrich. Um, then we had, during the Obama presidency, we had the phenomenon of the Tea Party, which appeared to be a, a grassroots uh, right-wing phenomenon in American public life. It was actually funded by a number of uh, very large right-wing uh, think tanks and corporate interests. Um, and Trump and his particular politics fits into then a, a political tradition that, that is at least 20 years old. Uh, and I can't see that going away just because of this defeat. In fact, it may re-empower that wing of the Republican Party to really go for it in the next um, House elections. So we shall see. Yeah, I, I just add on to that. I think it would be extremely difficult for the Republican Party to go back to that sense of good and proper sensible politics, um, because so doing will mean significantly distancing um, itself from Trump now, condemning what he's currently doing. Um, and of course, the major risk in doing that is that Trump does have his very, very loyal support. And it's quite early on to be looking at how the vote broke down, uh, has broken down, because don't necessarily have all the data yet. But it may well be the case that Biden, in a sense, won it, not so much because people were switching from Trump, but because there were enough people that didn't vote before who ended up going to vote in order to get rid of Trump. And that sort of suggests that that ground that the Republicans, by being sensible, might look to reoccupy, those sensible voters who are uh, leaning towards the right, but like proper sensible politics, well, maybe there isn't actually so much of that ground to, to, to capture. And in that sense, it's going to be quite important for them to maintain that base, which maybe means not condemning Trump for what he's currently doing. So they're in a, a, an interesting situation where it is actually going to be quite hard to shift away from the kind of direction Trump's been taking them in because he's got that very loyal section of the vote and there's perhaps not as much as you might have expected to be gained by going back to being grand old and proper. Yeah, I'd, I'd say two, two last points in addition to that. There's been a question raised about why so few congressional Republicans have come out and said, well done, Joe, you won the election, and why they've effectively allowed Trump to continue to push his narrative. Well, well one argument is it doesn't hurt them. You know, they know that Trump's going to lose, but if they come out now and say, oh, grow up, Donald, um, or you know, it's time to leave the stage, that will hurt them. That will hurt them within the party. So it makes sense just to let him continue until all his appeals run out and then he goes. It doesn't hurt them to do that. So that's why that silence is taking place. And the other point to note about why Trumpism or the Trump politics will survive is you have to understand that in the United States, in each state, it's the party with power that defines voting districts. And what that has meant, certainly for a very long time, is that parties uh, draw the borders of voting districts to ensure that they win. So you, 
very rarely or increasingly rarely in the United States have what you might call a competitive voting district where there are, say, 50% Democrats, 50% Republicans, or 40-40 and 10% undecided. Um, residential or um, electoral rezoning or, or, or um, the redrawing of, of those areas has tended towards a deeply polarised political system all the way down. So if you're an elected politician and 70% of the people in your district are going to vote Republican, well, then that stops you, if you like, thinking about moderating influences, especially if you're in the, in the House of Representatives where you're up for re-election every two years. Those processes of how you are elected and who, who is electing you reinforce a kind of tendency to speak to the base and to not seek, um, not seek cross-party or, or national unity. So I, I really can't see how some kind of unity candidate or moderate candidate or moderating influence will emerge from within that. It's just, it just won't happen. <laughs> Yeah. I, I mean, we, we could talk about Trump and what's going to happen next for, so, for such a long time, couldn't we? I'm conscious of time and we still need to talk a little bit about Biden. I want to talk a bit about the UK as well. So just to move on um, a little bit, Biden's wasting no time. COVID task force being set up. We've heard he may overturn some Trump policies by executive order. But what's in his in-tray? Because clearly the big thing is to tackle COVID. He's luckily Biden and Trump's had his say on this, obviously, come in at a point where a vaccine looks like it might actually be about to be rolled out. But what damage has been done by the previous administration in terms of getting the Americans to follow Biden in a what will look to be like a bit more of a sensible approach to tackling COVID and making sure that you know, people come with him to, to sort of control the pandemic? I've got one example of the problem he faces with the pandemic, which is... Um, BBC's North America editor, a man called John Sopel, uh, who's been covering the election and running a, running a very interesting podcast about it with another journalist, um, was watching one of the presidential debates. And he entered a bar that had been set aside for Republicans to, to watch the debate. And he, he walked in wearing a face mask. And as he walked in, someone immediately came up to him and said, you loser. Before he said anything he didn't take the mask off this guy just came up to him and identified face mask equals liberal equals someone pandering to the whims of the democratic party and um that i don't think that would happen uh in this country there are certainly divisions regarding the wearing of face masks but the connection of the face mask with a particular political culture it's certainly far advanced in certain parts of the United States. And that, in turn, makes it very difficult at this stage to turn around to the country and say, everyone wear face masks for your own good. Because it is a marker of that cultural divide, that political divide. Yeah, I mean, John's quite right. Um, COVID has been politicised um, such that the way in which uh, um, different constituencies will act uh, is informed by I suppose what their take on on science stroke knowledge stroke education on the one hand um, and uh, um, for, for a lot you know that kind of divide has opened up between um, here we are speaking on the university podcast between 
the university educated and those that don't have degrees. Um, but I think that face masks will cease to be the issue and vaccination will become the issue and the, um, the anti-vaxxers will, will, will come up. So that's been, I suppose, an undercurrent um, that's bubbling along. And all of these things are linked to one another. Um, so we, ha we haven't mentioned QAnon, um, but um, all of them are, are, are linked to one another. So yeah, it's 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 going to be tough for Biden. He he may well be saved by a vaccine, because um, obviously you begin to develop herd herd immunity. Uh, I'm not so sure I like using that phrase. The more people that uh, um, take the vaccine, you you don't have to have 100% coverage. Um, so the ability of the virus to spread will be. Um, if not eradicated, at least uh, um, quite substantially suppressed. I, I'd just to add one note to some of the challenges that are in his in-tray around COVID, always worth remembering that the US is a much more decentralised political system than the UK, with states having uh, far more power than counties or other administrations do here. So one of the challenges he'll face is that in addition to COVID falling on lines of political culture, there's also the risk that if he tries to do too much in terms of leading from the presidential position in relation to COVID, it could well generate major tensions between him and state governors and others. So it's gonna be a big, big challenge for him to find out how to work across those cultural divides around face coverings and responses to COVID and on top of that, to do that in a highly decentralized system um, where you, it's kind of unthinkable to have the national level measures that we've had in the UK suddenly put in place across the entirety of the US. Yeah, I mean, uh, COVID is certainly the kind of short term issue, um, but hopefully it will just be a um, short term. Uh, um, the, the news has been very, very positive in the last week on, on that front. Um, but there are numerous other issues um, that Biden has to tackle. Um, climate change, the economy, China, and big tech. Um, and in terms of big tech, um, th there's much discussion about, um, about them actually controlling big tech. But given the role it plays uh, at least within the US economy at raising taxation, um, I, th I think that one of his challenges might be protecting uh, the likes of Google, Facebook um, um, and Amazon uh, from challenges that are emerging from elsewhere in the world. Okay, so what about the impacts that this result will have on the UK? Um, what impact might it have on our politics? What impact might it had or have on um, Brexit? Should we tackle Brexit first? Buys in a strong links to Ireland, of course. Um, plenty believe, well, no, he's not the biggest fan of Boris Johnson because of you know, previous remarks he's made about President Obama as well. But he's not anti-British. He's always, uh, so, 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 so what sort of look will this Spain's special relationship have and, and what impact could that have on Brexit? I'll, I'll start off 
just very, very briefly on that front, I do think it's going to have a, an immediate impact. Um, there, there were reports prior to the election that um, Boris Johnson was waiting to see what the result of the election was as to whether he could um, uh, negotiate harder for, uh, um, for a particular deal or if needs be a no deal. I think that what you'll get now is a kind of watered down deal with it with the EU. I think you'll actually get get a deal. Um, and I suspect that Biden, I mean, we just talked about an intro with Biden. He's going to be in no great rush um, to sign uh, um, a trade deal with the UK. I'd um, I just add to that, there's currently um, special permissions for the US president to do trade deals, which I think need to get renewed if they are to be renewed in June. And in that sense, any special deal would really have to be a priority issue for a US president for it to happen in those kinds of timeframes, which would be extraordinary timeframes for a trade deal to happen. So from that point of view, I don't think it will be a Biden priority, which may well, as Andy said, uh, push the UK towards a deal. In terms of wider things around the special relationship, I think it's it's the close US-UK relations are not there just because you have particular premiers that get on. They're, they're quite deeply embedded in um, intelligence communities, military communities, civil services, and so on. So from that point of view, I think um, that kind of relationship would be expected to uh, continue. Um, it, and I think the UK also is very much aware that it's the, the junior partner in all of this and will be quite quick to change the way it speaks about certain things, um, the way it works with people within the US in order to make sure that it doesn't get particularly hit by um, having a different administration in charge. Um, so I don't think there'll be huge implications there, but there is one area I'm actually particularly interested in where things could change and that's, um, around relations with Saudi Arabia, because one thing that um, Biden has said is that he wants to uh, address the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, which is stemming partly from a Saudi-led military campaign in Yemen. Uh, and with that, he may well stop arms sales to Saudi Arabia. So it may well be that that will shift the UK away from its current support for the Saudi regime uh, to look again at the arms sales that are going on with Saudi Arabia that is seeing weapons used in Yemen. So that might be one area um, of interest to watch out for in terms of the impact of the Biden presidency on the UK. And to, just to add to that, Biden does have a track record of, of making a case for a humanitarian foreign policy. Way, way back in the 1980s, he assailed the Reagan administration for its policy over South Africa. If you're interested in that, you can find the clip of him really laying into uh, Secretary of State George Shultz uh, in a Senate hearing um, for his lack of moral standing in dealing with um, apartheid South Africa. But I just wanted to talk about this idea of the special relationship as well. Um, that idea goes back to Winston Churchill. It's another Churchill is in 1946. Winston Churchill coined the phrase special relationship. Um, I think it's better to think of, certainly I think the United States thinks of a special relationship with Britain. They don't think of it as the special relationship because after all the United States has special relationships with Mexico, with Canada. It has a number of very close strategic uh, trade military alliances. I think Robin's right that the, the alliance is grounded in um, military and strategic interests. But 
even in the last four years, there have been differences between the United States and Britain. And most notably, you could think of Iran policy. The United States has tried to tear up uh, the agreement in relation to Iran's um, nuclear development. Britain uh, and Europe have tried to hold that relationship in place. So the United, even the Johnson-Trump axis has not been one where there's been total alignment. So new areas of difference do look like uh, in the short term Brexit and the future of, of Northern Ireland. So it's, it's, it's hard to tell um, when you use that phrase special relationship exactly what it means it's changed so often over time but um, I suspect some of those military and strategic connections will remain even if the relationship gets strained a bit. Our zoom call has got to a, a, a ticking clock it's, 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 it's counting down to the end of this podcast but so just really quick wanted to just tackle a, a few more things what's it mean potentially um, this election result for Boris Johnson, because he has um, strong links to uh, Donald Trump. Trump likes to own Johnson as Britain Trump, is what he called him once, wasn't it? So um, what does it do potentially for him and for his premiership? I mean, uh, Biden has described Johnson as a Trump clone. So um, I, I mean... Johnson's star had sailed, and he's struck like Trump. He's had a he's ha, had a bad pandemic, um, and he will have Brexit to come. The Brexit deal deal will come, and it will be defined by those factors and the way in which um, the UK can uh, um, uh, emerge economically from these two. Um, two facets and I, I mean coronavirus is going to be more devastating for the, for the economy um, and um, he's got again much as with Biden he's got enormous challenges ahead and um, he's had his honeymoon now um, and we'll see the kind of manoeuvres he makes to uh, um, try and revive uh, um, the positive support that he, he had leading into the election and, and probably until coronavirus started going wrong, the, the figures on coronavirus in this country started um, beginning to look very, very poor in comparison with other countries. I think in relation to the US, there's one thing we haven't mentioned, which is the, which is the politics of racial injustice. And um, I think that is worth noting that I think many people who have been protesting in the streets of the United States, certainly in the short term since this May, since the, since the killing of George Floyd, but going back to 2014, um, before the Trump presidency with the birth of Black Lives Matter, I think that movement, which now has its first elected congresswoman um, from the district representing Ferguson, one of the former activists is now going to be in Washington. I think that movement will give the sense that at least it has an, a, an opponent in the form of the president who is prepared to move in some ways towards his agenda, especially with Kamala Harris in the vice presidency, although she has her own, as does Biden, has a difficult history uh, with the politics of, of racial justice. Um, we haven't discussed that during the rest of the um, podcast. I thought, it was, I thought it was important that we, we noted that that set of dynamics that, yeah, um, Black Lives Matter 
appreciated to a degree having Obama in the White House because there was someone they could pull towards their position. Trump was utterly resistant to the cause of uh, racial justice in that context. I suspect Biden, already said it a lot of times during the campaign, is again going to be prepared to do something for the movement if he can, even if it's just uh, uh, investigations by the Attorney General into uh, policing. I just wanted to get that in before we finish. Yeah, and, and just to add to that, um, the figures that I've seen said that 92% of um, African-Americans or, or the black community out there turned out for Biden, 6% for Trump. Um, and there, there was a massive mobilization. I mean, in, in Georgia, um, Stacey Abrams is kind of key there. Um, and I think the lesson um, of the 2020 election is um, if you can somehow manage to re-energize um, the electorate, they'll, they'll get engaged in politics. Now, that's almost been done negatively by Trump. Um, I, I see this very much as a vote against Trump rather than necessarily a vote for Biden. But his big challenge and the, the challenge against the kind of Trumpian form of politics or, or right-wing populism is to try and sustain um, a kind of momentum uh, um, such that uh, um, the enthusiasm, the engagement uh, um, continues. Yeah, I, I just had the, the, the thing that for me is, is the biggest kind of hope for change is precisely that, that we're no longer going to have in a huge position of influence someone who is going to uh, stoke racial tension and give legitimacy to um, effectively racist movements and um, racist rhetoric. Um, and that is really, really big. And the, the, the reason for kind of having a big smile for me when seeing that Trump had lost. Um, the, the, the downside, of course, is that despite all of um, the things Trump would say, all of the people he would lend his tacit or sometimes overt support to, he also increased his share of the vote. And in that sense, the, 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 the tensions and the racisms that exist continue to be there, continue to be alive. Hopefully, the fact that they're not aided and abetted from the White House will help contribute towards them, um, you know, being defeated. Um, but it's, yeah, the, the, the joy of the Trump defeat um, and what that means for race relations, racial justice, for me gets a little bit tempered by the, the fact that Trump didn't get a massive cut in his vote share after all that he's done. Yeah. Just one, last, one last point there is that, you know, the, the, the many African Americans do also remember that Joe Biden in the 1980s and 1990s did back a lot of um, criminal justice reform that increased sentences for people with uh, low level um, drug convictions, for instance. So his, his journey in this context, I say journey, is going to be very interesting. He, he, he's part of that recent past of what's you know, mass incarceration in America. And what will he do, what can he do now that he's uh, got the most powerful job in the United States? Look, look we, we've run out, 
we've run out of time, Robin. I'm, I'm really sorry. Clearly, we've got loads more we could talk about. And we'll have to, this, we've got another podcast in this, which we'll have to do in, in, a, in a couple of months' time when the dust has settled a little bit. Look, thanks so much to all of you for coming on the podcast. That's it for this episode. You can catch up on previous episodes by scrolling through the back catalogue. Thanks for listening.